I'm sitting with Michael Simons, who's with the um, director of the Early Life Nutrition Research Unit in uh, um, the Academic Division of Child Health at, uh, at the uh, uh, University of Nottingham, the Queen's Medical Centre. Um, and he is a pioneer in the resurgence of interest in brown adipose tissue in uh, physiological re regulation of, of uh, energy balance, heat production and so on. To give it a bit of a background, there was a lot of um, interest in brown adipose tissue in the 1970s and 80s as a mechanism for, for obesity. That went into, into demise for a long, long time and it's had a very recent resurgence, a real blossoming in, in research activity. And, and publications. So, so Michael, um, what's changed? Okay, there have been two major um, developments and, and pioneering um, advances in our understanding of brown adipose tissue. Uh, first of all, following on from a number of relatively minor publications by radio radiographers, which suggested that brown fat was present in adults, and this was detected in cancer patients in which they use um, the injection of radio-labeled glucose to highlight the tumour, and they were seeing uptake of the radio-labeled glucose by brown adipose tissue, and they just dismissed this as an artefact. And after a number of years, this got picked up by adipose tissue biologists and people who've been working on brown fat in the past. And there were a number of um, retrospective studies whereby people went back through several thousand PET-CT scans to see how many patients had brown fat and if there were any obvious uh, factors that could influence that, those measurements. And a number of publication, seminal publications came out at the same time in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009 and there were other, other papers in, in other prestigious journals about the same time which clearly showed that in routine PET-CT scans about 10% of all those people scanned clearly showed brown fat and that was more likely to occur in the winter months compared to the summer months and in some cases where people have had repeated scans you'd scan them in the summer there was no uptake of of radio labeled glucose in the brown fat but you then repeated the scan in on the same person in the winter months and lo and behold their brown fat was was there so so clearly there was um, now good evidence to show that brown fat was present in adults. And the other thing that these studies highlighted was the actual different um, anatomical locations of brown fat, with the most ab um, abundant site being in the neck, supraclavicular region, and that accounts for maybe 70% of all brown fat in humans. So we, we now know that all adults have brown fat, uh, it decreases as you get older and it's modulated by a number of environmental factors. So that was one of the key developments. But at the same time, there were, there were other studies going on in rodents, looking at lineage tracing to see what the origin of brown fat versus white fat is. And that seems to just suggest that uh, brown fat um, shares a progenitor precursor with muscle, while white fat... And also there's an intermediate fat known as beige fat. They share a very different progenitor precursor. Mm. So there's the identification, identification of brown fat in adults 
and there's the knowledge that brown fat may have a different origin from white fat. That's really interesting. I just wonder if you can just describe some of the work that you're doing in, 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 uh, in, in, with your group in Nottingham and with other people that you're working with. Maybe, you know, who are some of the key figures that are okay. involved? Obviously yourself, but... Uh, but okay, uh, so, so there are a number, a number of groups that have pioneered this work. Um, there's people like... Um, um, Jan Niedergaard and Barbara Cannon, who were involved in the brown fat work in the 1970s and 80s, and they've been doing um, some of the more molecular um, identifying what are, what are the what are the markers of brown fat versus white fat and beige fat. A lot a lot of that work has been done in uh, uh, rodent models. Um, there's people like Aaron Sippes and Mark and Van Lichtenstein Lichtenberger, who um, have utilised the PET-CT model to look at different physiological stimuli of brown fat and shown that things like beta-3 um, adrenergic receptors can acutely stimulate brown fat. Cold is clearly a factor that stimulates brown fat. And uh, there may be potentially dietary factors such as things like bile acid. But one of the, pro the problems with the, all of those studies in humans is that, that they rely on PET-CT to be able to measure brown fats and they're doing this in healthy volunteers but the, but the trouble is is that you have to inject quite large amounts of radio labeled glucose into these individuals and it's only those people that are deemed to be brown fat positive that show up with the PET CT so what we've been doing is to develop other techniques for looking at brown fat that we can use on a population-wide basis and in particular look at children because we know that brown fat is activated at birth it's more active in, in children compared to, to um, adults. And, and obviously one of our interests being in a child health department is childhood obesity. So potentially this could be an uh, anti-obesity target. So we've, we've used thermal imaging to see whether or not we can detect brown fats. And in, in our initial studies, we just got a thermal imaging camera. We just pointed it at a child to see where the hot spots were. And it was apparent that the, the hottest spot for brown fat was in the supraclavicular mm. neck region, which is where it's shown up with PET-CT scans. And if you go back to the original work that, that for example, David, Hilda, David Hull did in Oxford, when they dissected out brown fat from a large number of, of um, uh, dead babies in the 1960s and 70s, and you look at the results of that paper, the, the first line there shows that the, the most abundant depot of brown fat is in the supravicular mm. neck region so you know we've known about this for decades but it wasn't until for chance we did the pet ct studies to confirm mm. that there's metabolically active brown fat there and now we're using thermal imaging to be able mm. to follow in real time the brown fat being switched on look at some of the factors that regulate mm. that so to to yeah to to, to uh um, summarize that a little bit. Basically, the finding was, was, was there in the, in the late 1970s. The technologies moved on to be able to identify it, uh, more, more you know, clearly in living, in living people. It's actually a very sort of complex, um, set of, uh, instruments that you need to be able to do it in the laboratory. And what you're doing is trying to, uh, bring the instrumentation to a level where it can be used in, in population studies. That's right. So I mean, you're doing a kind of translational work into, 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 into population studies of brown fat. That's right. Yeah. A, a, 
a high-spec thermal imaging camera you can get for three or four thousand pounds. It's portable. The key thing is is having the subject sitting still in a controlled environment, and they maintain that posture, and you're able to follow in real time the changes in the temperature of the supraclavicular region in response to a, an appropriate challenge. And one of the challenges that we first used was just simply having their hand in freshly drawn cold water. And we saw quite a rapid increase in temperature mm. of the brown fat. It's only about half a degree C, but it's, it's, it's consistent and it's significant. And you see that in most individuals of normal, normal body weight that in which you conduct conduct those okay. sorts of studies. Yeah, well, Mark, that's incredible. It brings me to, 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 to the last question. I mean, what, what can one do? Can, what can anybody do in everyday life in you know, policy at the individual level to harness this physiological effect? Okay, well, I mean, we, we've got, we've got um, some evidence and other groups have some evidence to show that with obesity, brown fat activity is reduced. We don't know which, you know, which, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but I think you, you could accept that a reduction in brown fat, because it has such a high capacity to both generate heat and oxidize glucose, if its activity is compromised, then you're more likely to put on excess weight. And we know that quite simple factors, such as we've, we've done a, a pilot study whereby if you just have a cold shower for two or three minutes each day over a week, then this will stimulate your brown fat. Mm. And there's an interesting um, webcast from a medic in the States where they're actually using cold showers as a treatment for a diabetes. Okay. And okay. So, so simple things like that, turning down the thermostat, just okay. trying to make yourself cooler. And it may be that there are specific dietary components hmm. that, that you could just add to your diet that will acutely and maybe in the long term stimulate your ability of brown fat to generate heat. Okay, that's incredible. So learning to live comfortably at lower temperatures would be would be that's good. Right. It would save energy in, in more than one way, wouldn't it? Save on the heating bills, you know, help combat climate change and uh... and reduce obesity <laughs> potentially. No, that's wonderful. That's inc incredible research you're doing. Michael, thank you very much.